bitch. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? When you have to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Bitch, the Chicago. November 2023. David Zaslav is the master of Warner Brothers. Only Wheel of Dad movie stands before him. Podcasts are now battlefields. Hey everyone, what's up? It's me, Ewan, for the Wheel of Dad Movies podcast. And if you hadn't guessed from that lovely little introduction, we're diving into an absolute banger of a film this week, courtesy of our absolutely wonderful guest, Lindsay Wilkins of the Schlock and Awe podcast. Lindsay, how are you doing? We're going to talk about Master and Commander this week. We are. We're talking Master and Commander. Uh, a, uh, a battle of two weevils. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I will be making that pun a lot that... Oh my god! Um, no, I'm. Can't wait. When, yeah, when you asked dad movies, my brain just kind of went in fifty dif- different directions, so I had to go. Wait, he hasn't done Master and Commander yet. That no, okay. We'll we'll see if we can get that one on. And I did, and um, no, it's been wonderful. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure because again, I always bring this up whenever I invite another podcaster from the podcasting scene onto the podcast. There's a lot of podcasts. Um, I'm always grateful that when I started like talking to Dan about doing this podcast, he introduced me to a bunch of different ones, and that was like the action Twitter sphere. And then through that sphere, I've discovered all sorts of different podcasts, so like uh, Film Feast by Matt Bledsoe, and then Schlock and Or as well, which I think is like the coolest premise for a podcast, and I really enjoy listening to it. Um, especially the most recent episode with Jackson Bourne, who is just all around great dude. And I love his, uh, lighting the, the, the bat signal, the night E signal for like those mid budget nineties movies. He he does so well. Yeah. Keeping, keeping the flame alive for those, which is needed. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and like introduce yourself and like what Schlock and Awe is all about? Uh, Schlock and Awe is the excuse I get to kind of put to use how my brain works um no it is a, a double feature podcast we always talk two movies and the i guess the original intent was to have to one have kind of one low and one high art kind of movie mash them together now it's just turned into a way of can we put two movies together and see if they work as a double feature like regardless of genre um director actor kind of thing so with the jackson one boring one you mentioned it is a double feature of Field of Dreams and Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Um, and it is very much a ghost dad, uh, force ghost dad double. And it worked really... Thankfully not about ghost dad. It's <laughs> yes, not, no, not the movie ghost dad, but it's definitely got about a ghost dad. And um, it, it actually took me way longer to realize, oh shit, James Earl Jones is in both these movies um, than it probably should have. But... Also, yeah, so you kind of, um, yeah, because uh, the Halloween season, I did a werewolf series and it was just kind of mixing together werewolf movies with other random things to kind of, I guess, showcase what a werewolf movie can be, like with the curses and the undead and the creature feature and all that kind of thing. So it's, um, no, I'm having a blast with it. That's really cool. I mean, it, it's a really fun premise so I'm, I'm jealous of it it's that good um yeah i guess i'll follow this up now with the the, the hollow question because you, you touched on last week jackson actually slid into my my dms the, uh, last week when the episode came out being like hey this is dad movie topics you should give this a listen um but yeah i guess i need to ask you like what to you is a dad movie a dad movie to me is I guess going, it is it is kind of like the mid-budget 90s movie is kind of like the perfect example, 80s movie is the perfect example of it, but it kind of feels like a very functional movie 
that is very technically sound that you can watch on a Sunday afternoon with your dad and he will point to the screen and go, that is correct. Um, <laughs> which you can fudge it around because, um, you know, action movies can be, you know, um, Michael Bay, because I think you did The Rock with um, Matt Bledsoe. Um, yes, yeah. yes, that's correct. That's yeah. not necessarily technically correct, but something about it will make your dad point to the screen and go, yes, I, I don't know how else to, to, to put it. <laughs> yeah, he's doing the Leo point, yes! like full stars when Sean Connery shows up and makes a joke, a sly remark about formerly being James Bond, it, but not James Bond. Exactly. <laughs> that is that is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, so you, you, you picked Master and Commander, um this for for this episode again is that like uh is that a movie that that you watched watched with your dad was this like a thing that he appreciates or is this just like a vibes kind of direction kind of choice more of a vibe so i have shown this to to dad and he did actually enjoy it but this is not something that we watched together this is something because i am a massive nerd um <laughs> found on my well not found on my no i did because i read Okay, I have read the books, so... Um, oh, damn. Yeah. That's, that's really good, because I haven't read them, and I, I've been told that I should read them, they because are, apparently they're my vibe. <laughs> they're wonderful. They are old sea shanty adventure kind of vibe, and they are, are wonderful and amazing. Um, don't have as much uh, strong thematic theme as the movies. They're just literally guys on a boat being bros. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> we got some guys and we stuck them on a boat. And exactly, here we go. <laughs> exactly. So it's not kind of like the amazing thing that Peter Weir kind of turns the movie into, but it's so I kind of went on this weird, massive binge of just reading nothing but Terry Pratchett and Patrick O'Brien, and then they kind of announced that they were doing this movie, and I'm like, even at the time, was going, "What you're doing? These old-fashioned kind of weird books that I like. Who else is reading these?" Um, and was kind of weirdly kind of excited but weirdly put out. I was like, how did they know I'm reading these books? And now I get a movie with, <laughs> with Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. Um, so, yeah, and then later on I did show it to my dad and he just went, yeah, that was good, which for my dad is um, high praise. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the muted reaction. Yes. Of like, that was good. It's like, get in. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, this is one that I like, I grew up with. So I, I'm going to make myself look like a baby now. I was seven when this film came out in cinemas. Um, and it was a film that I first got to watch on DVD because at the time I was too young to be taken to the cinema to go watch it. I know it's a 12A, um, but the 12A of choice that my parents selected to go see instead was Pirates of the Caribbean and Curse of the Black Pearl, which, while a great time at the movies, I do kind of now have a vendetta against for having deprived us of however many other Master and Commander sequels we could have had. But I digress. <laughs> I forget those two came out the same year, and you're right. Everyone went to see the Black Pearl and not Master and Commander, and we could have had five of these things by now. Exactly. But yeah, like my dad, like he picked it up on DVD and it was kind of like during a period where um, we'd have our like movie nights. So we'd like order in pizza and ribs and like we'd stick on a movie. So this was like one of those like kind of not quite like it's not like a Die Hard with a Vengeance style like or Untouchables watershed moment to me where those were. I remember watching those two movies and having a force, forceful experience of being like, oh my God, I'm watching a grown up movie right now. But it was kind of like in that that blurry kind of like hazy oh this is this is more grown up than the stuff that i'm usually like used to watching and i'm quite like but again very much enjoyed it 
amazing time, beautiful performances, immaculately directed, and again, like, um, kind of one of those movies that, I think we mentioned this before we started recording, that you, you I, well, I know that I, for a fact, took for granted for a while. It's like, because maybe that's because a lot of movies now, they don't really have the practical majesty of, you know, or the, or the eye that Peter Weir brought to his productions. Um, but watching it again today, because I do my homework last minute, um, it's stunning, like absolutely in, in awe of everything. Um, it's a great time. <laughs> it is. And there's a really good point. Like even when I was, oh, very, I think 20, something like that. Um, when I was watching it, I didn't appreciate Peter, Peter Ware's um, majesty and complexity he was kind of bringing to it. I was like, why isn't Stephen making more fat jokes about Jack Aubrey? That is kind of an important thing about the book. What What, what is going on? Um, and so I remember liking it, but not loving it. Which you kind of want to slap yourself going, no, look what he did. He recreated a um, Napoleonic ship of war and um, kind of gave you these very kind of minute details that you just do not see in other movies. I mean, I love Black Pearl and I love the ship chases across the ocean in that movie. But that, when you actually look at kind of just the details of the men scaring up the masts and everything like that, it's it's incredible. This is, has to be one of the most authentically lived-in movies I've ever seen. I was saying, because cause Zan was in the room when I was watching it earlier on, I was like, this is one of those movies where even when there's Hollywood talent involved, they all look like they could be from, like, they all look Georgian. They all look like they could be from yeah. the early 19th century. Like, everyone kind of has, like, and you just, there are certain moments where you're looking at this movie and they're, like, in the in the bowels of the ship and you're just wondering to yourself, like, man, I bet you it smells bad in there. Oh, um, like, it feels pungent <laughs> oh you can smell this movie every single time Killick comes on screen you could just see the waft of smell behind him it's it's, it's amazing <laughs> yeah i've got to do the obligatory uh context here for people who are listening to the podcast and i doubt there's gonna be many people who are listening who haven't seen master and commander but given that it didn't do too well at the box office when it came out i might as well you know kind of throw caution to the wind and just basically like go ahead and, and do it so yeah it came out in 2003 directed by peter weir who as you, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, know he's a favourite. Um, he directed my favourite Harrison Ford movie, Witness. Um, just a brilliant filmmaker. Did stuff like Gallipoli as well, which is a great war movie that I think more people need to see. But yeah, they so do. it's based on the Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey and Matron novels set during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, it's, it's adapted from several different stories, if I'm correct, Lindsay. Yes. So you've got like Far Side of the World and a few others i think uh, it's mainly a combination between the first and the tenth which is far side mm-hmm. of the world but they've also dotted in a few like i haven't read I haven't read all the books in quite a while but i do sort of remember um going wait that's not from the book that's definitely not okay that's from the first one um so it's kind of an amalgamation of i think what a aubrey i always call it mature which i think i've been pronouncing it mispronouncing for 20 years go me but um matron um book kind of is and i think they did a good job but yeah it's it's not one book definitely not one book yeah and it's set during the napoleonic wars in 1805 obviously i butchered the intro at the beginning of the podcast it's it's immortal if you haven't seen (laughs) it's one of the best opening title cards to a movie ever this sets the stage brilliantly it's so good um and yeah so basically uh focuses on captain jack aubrey and the surgeon uh dr stephen matron so russell crowe plays aubrey and uh, paul bettany plays matron um, and they're dispatched to the South Pacific to hunt down a privateer vessel called the Akron, or the Ijran, if you're French. 
um, that has been basically given free license from the French government to hunt British ships, uh, rather than commercial, military, whatever. I believe in one of the stories that this is inspired by, it's actually set during the War of 1812, yes. and the Acheron an was an American vessel, and it's based on, again, I should know this because I'm a history dude, I should know which vessel it's actually inspired by, but it was kind of one of those advanced new warship frigate type vessels that had like kind of like a, a new wooden structure to it um yeah yeah i'm i'm a history nerd as well but the napoleonic and the uh war of 1812 i'm not particularly great on um but yeah it was kind of the whole thing is that uh i think in the novel uh aubrey was tasked with protecting because it was specifically going after british whalers that was the thing of the ship so it was tasked to protect it but because He's on his old faithful, the HMS Surprise, which is a big deal in the books, and it's kind of like this extension of Jack Aubrey. Um, this old kind of almost pre-Napoleonic ship, I think. It's like really old, yeah. Um, that is going up against this new, fandangled, very new ship that the Americans have built, and they are ready to, and they're like, okay, so now we we actually need to beat them by smarts, not um, bombs, because we can't take on this ship but it yeah it's really cool i know you mentioned the whole thing of like how the surprise is like an extension of aubrey we'll get into it when we go kind of like break the movie down but i do like how i mentioned the movie was like feels very lived and believable i also like how you can tell that it's storied there's a preeminence to the characters here and the setting where you can tell that you know, when Aubrey walks in, you're like, oh, this guy has had many stories. This is just one in a, in a grand tapestry of adventures or whatever. You know, he's got the scar on his ear. There's that little comment that one of the, the shipmen makes where he's like, oh, Captain Jacks once said there's enough blood of his on the surprise that, you know, it's, it could be a relative or whatever. Um, which I think is like a really cool dynamic as well. And again, kind of reiterates the, the, the suckiness that we never got more sequels or anything. <laughs> exactly, because there's a lot going on. But the, when you're sort of looking at today, everything kind of has to start as an origin story. And Pirates of the Caribbean started off as an origin story of sorts. Um, it's kind of ballsy to kind of start the story like five movies in that you're meant to know the relationship between Matron, oh I can't say his name, and Aubrey just instantly and you're meant to kind of know that this crew has been together for years and it's because I remember watching it going, do people know that the story, the backstories to this and I don't I think you're just meant to inherently know it because the movie does such this good job of sort of saying um, these two have been friends for years, they have a shorthand Everyone kind of knows how everyone else works, except for that poor one one boy. Well, he's not a boy; he's thirty. <laughs> but Holla, Hollem, um, it's everyone kind of knows each other and have worked together for absolutely years. So when a death happens, it means something more than yeah. There's a depth of meaning, especially the guy who's because um, this is a very episodic movie. It's sort of one story, one story, one story, and then with this kind of narrative. Uh, flowing through it as well as everything else and yeah it's just beautifully told beautifully done and you do get the sense that it is so lived in and it's been lived in for years like this crew knows each other back and forth and you get that i always think it's it's a it's a huge mark of the quality of a film that you're watching where even the bit players you come away feeling that they're a believable part of everything i forget the guy's name the guy who and again we will be going into spoilers here, so if you haven't seen Master and Commander, please, please don't go, let a bozo oh, like me it. ruin it for you. Um, but I forget the guy's name. He 
he's he's the gray-haired fella um who initially questions some of Aubrey's decisions at the beginning oh, and then Ellen. he takes a bullet yeah yes yeah, so he takes a bullet oh to, the, to the to the at the end and it's like so shock like just complete shock um but i love i love how even with him it's like well he's not really like you can't really say that he's a core component of the film but you still feel that loss and you still feel like oh god everyone here has the you know even the guy who's like the head of the royal marines on board and and, and whatever and like um yeah no i just i think it's great like it, it, it it's, it's such a efficient movie because i feel like every single member of the cast does so much with and i don't mean little in a negative way but they do they're very efficient with what they're given yeah, the guy who plays Aubrey Stewart, uh, I think it's got a specific title, I can't remember what it is, it's Killick. Uh, I think it's played by the guy who was in the British version of Shameless. You know every single thing about that guy just by looking at him. The fact that he's such a delightful asshole that he's kind of just, I get, I get it why he's fed up because he's been serving Aubrey, um, who just gets him into every single scheme that he doesn't want to get put into. Like That moment toward the end where they're about to do the final battle. And he's getting Killick involved in being one of the whalers. And he just goes, you can just see him slouch going, oh, for, uh, for God's sakes. Um, it's when he's getting his food and he's playing the violin with uh, uh, Paul Bentley. And he goes, oh, they're screeching again. I don't know, everyone, even uh, the guy, the Hobbit, I uh, did write his name yes. down. He's like, yeah, you yeah. know exactly what his job is. You know exactly who his character is. And he's only on screen for maybe not even 10 minutes like and he's always in the background it's never the background they're kind of background actors but yet they're so ingrained that you know you know alan's kind of the one who's always going to question you know his first lieutenant um is the ride or die for him you know you you knew you know every function of each person and it's it's incredible feat of filmmaking that no one gets lost it's yeah yeah, totally. And I feel like that probably is aided dramatically by the set design and the costume design, the attention to detail we mentioned before. Because when I look at the surprise in this movie, I almost don't want to look up how they recreated it and how they made it so believable. Because there's no point in this film where I feel like they aren't on an old British frigate in the middle of the South Pacific. It is so, like, you know, like, you've got people scaling the masts, you've got people hanging up and dangling off the sides, you've got people, you know, manning the cannons, you know, bailing the water, everything, like, every single role, everything about it, it's so, so believable. Um, and everyone's kind of doing their efficient little jobs within that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's even a shot when they're down in near Antarctica where it's everything's covered in snow, everyone's freezing, and there's this poor old guy with his pants down around his ankles taking a dump. And you'd be, you're like, yeah, that's where they would have to take a dump. And if even if it's like they're in the waters of Antarctica, they still have to drop their pants and do it and outside. And you're like, oh, this would have been a hard life. Like, it's... It conveys the meanness and the awfulness of this job because there are literal children in war in this. Like you forget, <laughs> um, and but that was a sailor's life. You started when you were ten, and then the time you were like twenty-five, you got your first boat, and then you just carried on. It's um, it's just so kind of intricate, and it's normal. Like I'm watching children kind of do war, and I'm like, no, this is this is completely normal because it's. Uh, 18th century man of war this is how they did things i'm glad you brought up the the children 
because I love the way the crew interact with them and you have that dynamic and you have again like for people who are aware of the history and the intricacies of like the Royal Navy's traditions and how it was recruited and you know the the, the idea of a soldiering family and like how like the, the different kind of classes in the United Kingdom at the time how that felt through into what job you would get in the Royal Navy where you get the incongruous situation of having a literal like 12 year old boy being able to command you know grown men or whatever um I love the way that the soldiers interact with that and how even though it's like kind of like a, it, it's, it should be jarring for them. What I like about in particular Crow's performance, I think this is one of his greatest performances. It's so good. This He's is just a nice relishing it's, yeah. all of it. Um, I love how to disarm the kids here, they make it seem like a big game. And there is like, you kind of like, and it goes back down into that idea of like when he's talking to them about Nelson. And it reminds me of me when I was growing up and I'd be reading Commando comics and like you kind of like grow up those stories of like war heroism and stuff, you know, removing the political, jingoistic and kind of like unsavory aspects from that as you will. But the idea of like basically making them feel comfortable in this ridiculousness. And like there's that bit where they're just about to be pursued. They're being pursued by the Akira, yes. I think, and they're trying to get yeah. the, the, the the correct sales and he gets them to all do the, the spinny thing and stuff and they're there on the sextons too. I love all of that. And like, even when he's like, he gets his arm amputated and just everything, there is, there is so much here about like, you know, the bonds of friendship and it is the ultimate dudes rock movie or one of the greatest dudes rocks movies. But I just wanted to draw attention to that because I think that's a really subtle nuanced aspect of Crow's performance series, how he speaks to the kids compared to how he speaks to, you know, people who, who are his age. There's that whole kind of like all that different leadership built up in that character and the compassion, the rage, the frustration, the intelligence, everything. He he gets it all down so well. <laughs> he, he does. I forgot with the scene with the kids when he's got when they got the sextons, I forgot that they were actually being pursued. I because th- usually there's this amazing sense of when you're at war you're not at war. And he does the same thing in Gallipoli as well. When um, one of my favorite scenes from Gallipoli, which shows the very typical Australian gallows humor is, I think it's Bill Hunter, the great legend. Um, He's introducing the two guys. One of them is Mel Gibson, but he's young. So he hasn't quite gone full crazy yet um, into the trenches at Gallipoli. And he's shaking hands of all the people that are buried within the walls of the trench. He's just, because their hands are just poking out. So he's just, g'day mate. Um, and it kind of has this really amazing way of how people interact between those, not even, there's the intense moments where everyone's kind of, yet yeah, full ball, we're going for it. And there's these kind of moments where you're still at war, but you're not doing war things. So you can keep the children calm by making it a game. Or And I love the scene with uh, Metron um, after, when he's amputating that kid's arm. And they're really gentle with him. It's not this kind of brutality or this kind of thing. I mean, he's got no anesthetic and they're literally using a saw on the arm. But they everyone's very gentle with him. And um, even when one of the kids dies at the end, who I think is like probably 16, and it's one of the other kids who wants to sew him up in his um, thing because he doesn't want to put the nose, the needle through the nose. It's, again, this very gentleness with these kids, even though... You're right, you've got a 12-year-old directing grown men in war because of he was born into a class that is a naval family, so he's always going to be on the track to be a captain. Um, unlike everyone else who those the actual kind of ship people are never going to wear a uniform in their life. They are just there to be cannon fodder, to do the jobs, to do whatever. So it's um, he gets all that in it. 
and there's a jingoness sense to it, but you don't, it's more about the empathy of these men and what they're going through every single day. And it's, it's horrendous, but yet at the same time, kind of amazing. There's a really, and I think we we did the last of the Mohicans on the podcast the other week as well, and we discussed um, the the siege of Fort William Henry and that, where you have the gentlemanly exchange between the British and French. And obviously you have similar stuff here with the matter of deception and rules and that kind of whole gentlemanly warfare thing. But what Weir, I think, does so well here is that he doesn't render that as a mutually exclusive thing. He shows both the actual, you know, abject horror of all of this but still acknowledges that there were these traditions and respect and, like, kind of things between, you know, uh, <laughs> like, officers and, 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 and whatever. And I love, again, how they subvert that at the end and the whole Phasmid thing, which is just genius. You mentioned at the beginning, just before then, about the kid who um, who takes the, you know, the, 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 the wooden shrapnel to the arm. We should probably talk a little bit about the opening scene because it is one of the most immediately arresting um, kind of first... 10 50 minutes of a movie i think that you can find because you have that brilliant title card and uh, it kind of caught me off guard when i was watching it again today because i was i thought i was going to get a main menu so i was like setting up my like movie like snacks or whatever and i was like i missed the title card no i need to replay it so i replayed it <laughs> got it from the beginning um and you have that it's like it's like a, a dark it's it's at nighttime isn't it and you yes. kind of have like the the war and then you you slowly get to them like waking up and the kind of anxiety from the shipman you have um is it Hollum Hollum the guy who they consider to be the the bad omen Jonah yes. or whatever he's there being indecisive being like I thought I caught something off so you already introduced their mission you know they're hunting down this this advanced privateer because they have the little um the letter that is sent it's really good and then you know everyone gets brought to their stations and you're instantly immersed in this kind of you know this setting and world and it goes from oh yeah no we're doing our thing we're all having a little bit of banter you know Captain Jack's here eh oh he's got like a story to tell yeah and then just and the so so good and especially great because I think what this film does so well again we talk about the the, the historical accuracy whatever the fact that they show how cannon fire actually works and how it's not like big explosions it's actually just big round pieces of awfulness yes. that collide with with bits of the ship and tear it apart one by one and cause it to, you know, and like, oh my God, it's brilliant. And they basically have to like, they, they only just managed to survive by doing the Wrath of Khan maneuver uh, yeah, going into much. the nebula. <laughs> no, and they do that a couple of times. I mean, they go into a massive storm to escape it as well. It's um, like the Millennium Falcon going into the um, asteroid kind of field in, I think it's uh, in Empire. It's, it, yeah, and that's, but that sound, it is, yeah, not, there's no explosions. I mean, there's a lot of smoke, which there would have been if you're, like, shooting those old kind of um, rifles, and there just would have been so much smoke you couldn't see anything. But that sound and that crash and just wood everywhere. The sound design in this movie is incredible. But I love the opening because it's, yeah, it's just, it's obviously before dawn, there's, like, a change of the, change of the, the guard or whatever, and you just see people scurrying across the ropes to with the sails. And you see to see the mechanics of, like, the crew is like, I love how this movie kind of treats the surprise like its own ecology. I think that's the word. Um, it's its own little environment. And it has its, um, which Holland definitely plays into that because he is kind of, unfortunately, the weak one. And he has to take himself out. And... Yeah, it just works so well. And so, and I love the shots when you first see um, Aubrey, like you see him, like he's got maps on the floor, he's disorganized, but, 
as soon as it's called a battle, he's like, yep, I know what I'm doing. Let's go. You have poor Matron, uh, Matron who's kind of looking up going, okay, here we go. I'm about to, um, there's going to be blood. I'm going to have to do my job. And everyone's in their place for the moment where they need to be for this thing to happen. And they get pummeled in the first battle. I mean, I think the only battle they win is the last one, which I love. It's just, they just can't beat this thing. And of course that just annoys Jack no end. And he has to um, push everything to the limit because he cannot be beaten. This is a guy who does not, um, in the books, the whole conceit is on sea. He's a genius. He's the guy you see. As soon as you put him on land, he's a buffoon. Like he doesn't know. Um, he keeps talking about his sea legs. He just does. He always gets like frauded. He always like it, it's. He's a mess. Um, where there's Matron, Matron is the kind of he knows what he's doing on land, but he's not good on sea. And it's kind of how the two kind of maneuver that while Jack is constantly dragging him on a boat <laughs> out into the middle of the ocean, but. Yeah, you get that dichotomy so quickly, and it's just, visually, it's just perfect. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you mentioned the ecology aspect there, because I was going to bring up later in the podcast how, um, again, between The Thin Red Line, Last of the Mohicans, and also this, there is a through-line discussion of kind of like war as a thing that we are compelled to do as humans, uh, and also the, the, the kind of symbiotic relationship with the environment. And you mentioned the ecology of the ship there, that's such a great mirror visual image to the shots we get at the Galapagos. Yes. Where all the different animals are kind of in their own, you know, space or whatever and, and, and doing their own thing and being studied. And ultimately it comes from taking a, it comes from a moment of pause where they reflect on their surroundings and the environment and they, and they listen and learn that they're able to ultimately like best their enemy, which I think is really, really cool. Um, yeah. I mean, the movie looks brilliant. You're totally right. Like I love kind of how, like it's it's quite a grey looking movie. It's quite desaturated at times, but that certainly fits the kind of unvarnished portrayal we get of the era, doesn't it? Like it's it's not by any means it's not a bad looking movie. There are some amazing shot compositions here. The bit where you have that first um, exchange of cannon fire between the surprise and the Aperon, and where it kind of has that that like uh, kind of wide angle kind of like shot of both of them and it's just the smoke and they've, they've stopped firing and it's just the smoke as they pass each other by again yeah. the sense of scale is just ridiculous <laughs> it is insane like i know they didn't i know they actually built like an almost replica of a goddamn man of war um a couple um and then and just kind of did it all there but it does actually feel like they're out in the middle of the pacific and it's or there are, I mean, they did actually go to the Galap- Galapagos Islands, which I, it's amazing they actually convinced the Chilean government to let them film there because it's very hard. You can't ex- exactly just go on the island and hang out because um, it's a very specific environment. And like a lot of isolated islands, you only get certain animals on that place because that's how evolution works. And the, the fact that they're comparing that to the surprise, I think... I only just got there with watching that. I went, oh God, Peter Weir, you're a goddamn genius. He is. It's truly, a, he's like so cool. And again, like I, I have to shout out Witness again because I love that movie. And I think he, like he, he's so good. He's like a proper actor's director. I feel like he always gives them, you mentioned like the efficiency there and how everyone is able to do so much with so little here, but they are given just enough to bring out the best sides of themselves. Yeah. Um, and I always get that from his films where I feel like every single, you know, component of them, every single 
piece that's laid down on the board it has its function but also the freedom to kind of go with it as they please and i get that from from everyone in here yeah i mean russell crowe can be a very hit and miss actor for me but when he's on point oh my god he's on point and you kind of get the sense that one he's enjoying himself too that he has the freedom to kind of really explore this character and he's not there's no kind of constraints and he's kind of the embodiment of this of this character and it's kind of it's an infectious thing to watch and then especially when you get the moments between him and Martin are kind of amazing because he's a different person with him than he is with the ship and you you see so you get to see all the different sides of him yeah i mean that's a really good point as well because it's like you know you have you have captain jack the sailor the myth the figure who's kind of like his own lord nelson yes-esque kind of deified guy but he knows that he has to play that role to earn and command the respect of his men and get them to go along with his kind of like big decisions but he can be vulnerable to to match and like you said like they have their i love I love the fact that how, even though they have a lot of intense conversations in this movie, I feel like the most important pieces, the most important words spoken between them are musical. Like when they're on their respective instruments together and they're they're kind of in sync and on the same page and you really get the idea that, yes, these people are kindred spirits. And I don't know about you, Lindsay, but the shot of when, um, after uh, Maturin has been winged by the, the, the dumbass Royal Marine who's been trying to shoot that poor albatross um and he wakes up on the galapagos islands and just sees aubrey smiling almost kind of like reassuringly down at him that is one of the most romantic things i've ever seen in a movie it is and he goes oh please don't tell me this is on my account no no just wanted to stretch my legs it's it speaks so much to their friendship and the fact that i mean in the book's Metron will throw a tantrum every time he doesn't get his way. And usually Jack is like, oh, <laughs> darling. Um, and goes, does what he wants anyway. Um, so the, the the fight that they have is definitely in the book, but it's more Metron th- throwing a tantrum and then Jack kind of shrugging his shoulders at him and patting him on the head and walking away. Like He doesn't take it that seriously as they do in, in the movie, but you need that kind of moment with two friends who are kind of um, at an impasse of okay, your obsession might be going too far, but what about my obsession? And it's kind of... It was weirdly frustrating because Metron is such a fascinating, weird character. You only get glimpses of it in this movie because it's more of the Jack movie, which I'm fine with, but I'm like, this guy is a spy. Like, this guy in the books is an actual spy, which when he says the spy line, I'm like, ooh. (laughs) Um, But again, we should have had more movies because he's a horrible spy. He keeps getting caught. Jack has to keep going rescuing him. (laughs) Um, it's this kind of thing where he's all, they're always going to sort of different things and he's such a weird bird of a character that he's very awkward on thing. And when he gets on land, that's kind of where his element is. And, and to sort of see those glimpses of it is, um, amazing, but you do get him to see running after creatures on, on the Galapagos Islands. I'm like, Oh, there he is. There's Steven. This is, this is him and his element. Just, um, wanting to potter around in his own head, not having to worry about the wider world. And then, of course, he does see the boat and he has to go tell his friend. But it's, um, I'm like, oh, there he is. I, I do get my Stephen moment. <laughs> Honestly, the bit where he uh, he's like, they're looking through the telescopes and he's like seeing the cormorant. Like, as someone who enjoys <gasps> bird watching, shows. I'm like, I totally relate because I love, I love cormorants. Like, my favorite bird. They're so cool. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I thought it was 
relatable content really um <laughs> and yeah the galapagos scenes are beautiful because it's all like natural they all go there i love a bit where they're measuring the tortoises cause yes it's great and like the whole idea of like um Aubrey's like as long as you name a bush after me and he's like no i'll name you after a, a tortoise and <laughs> it's just brilliant i love their dynamic so so much and i love how even when they bicker you can see you can see the kind of unwinnable position that they're in, that war puts them in. Yes. Because neither of them are right, I feel, when they do bicker. I feel like there's there's, there's kernels of, of, you know, righteousness to both positions, especially during the, the moment of kind of insubordination that they get, where um, they, you know, the, the shipmen are kind of confronting Holland and, and basically, you know, seeing him as this Joda figure who's going to, like, doom the mission or whatever... And obviously Holland is not good at his job. He's trying to be friends with them. And it kind of goes into that that thing of like, well, he's like, be, he's undermining his own position by being unsure of himself, you know, not really being up for the job in certain aspects, but then also trying to not stamp his authority down. Obviously, Matron is very much like a case of like, you know, these kind of like traditions, they're basically like, part, like tantamount to tyranny. You know, you, yeah. you know better than Bonaparte, I think is the line that he says there. But at the same time, it's like, well, in this situation, what do you do if, if you, you you stop the chain of... A, if, if, if the authority on the ship is being disrespected in this instance, you know, it could have a snowball effect and stuff like that. And I like how there is acknowledgement. Yeah, it sucks. It definitely sucks. But then you also see the perspective of like, well, okay, no, I kind of do see what's going on here because like... And then at the same time, when Holland, you know, sadly kills himself because he's bought into this idea that he is, you know... Um, an albatross around the neck of the ship. Um, they all apologize at his funeral for not, you know, being there as a friend and having that kinship between them. And I think there's probably one of the great things about the film is that it is such, like we mentioned before, it's like a dude's rock movie, but it's also a dude's suck movie. You know, it's a lot about how, like, people, you know, even though Matra and, 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 and Aubrey have their close friendship and they all have their banter, they're all there eating their chocolate pudding, and there's that great bit where Aubrey's oh, like, yes. You know, scoffing down the acheron and also the lesser of two weevils when he literally can't finish the sentence because he finds it so funny they have all those great moments um and they mourn the, the losses but at the same time is there's that tacit acknowledgement of like we're kind of even though we're all cramped together in this walking this floating coffin um with guns on it yeah <laughs> we are also kind of strangely distant um, which I think is an important aspect of the movie. Well, well, yeah, even that conversation, which I love, is during the storm, they've just lost it, but they've lost a, a guy. And it's Matron and Aubrey alone. And even Matron has to go, am I talking with my old friend or am I talking to the captain of the ship? Like, he even knows there's a difference with with, with Jack, that he has to be careful. Like, he just can't say, yeah, the, the crew's getting grumbly. They don't know why you're pushing this so hard. Um, and then, of course, Aubrey admits, yeah, my orders were to follow him to Brazil and no more, but I need to get this ship. So he's kind of taken them rogue a little bit. And it's still, but also, I, when you're speaking to the pudding scene and everything like that, there is this kind of weird kind of, we've, we've talked about the difference between the sort of the classes, the uniforms and the not, but at the same time they're separated, but at the same time they're together. It's kind of this weird, especially with when Holland dies and they're all kind of feeling guilty Except Killick. My favourite joke is when he passes the Bible and you see the Jonah reference saying, read the Jonah reference. And you're like, oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. He just closes it and says what he says. And it's... Size and Captain Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Just Jesus Christ, Killick. Um, And even when he sort of... 
the the two of them are observing poor Holland with the rest of the crew, and they're just just turning their back. They're just glaring at him. And Aubrey, I can't remember what he says, but even uh, Mutrin goes, "Oh no, you believe it too." And Jack's kind of like, "Well, yeah, I'm a seaman. This is kind of when bad things keeps happening, and he's the one who first saw the vessel, and it's all." And he's not good at his job, so it's kind of this added excuse for them not to... Because he's constantly... If you're not good at your job on a man of war, you're putting people in danger, which is such a stressful thing. As someone who screws up a lot and gets gets very distracted, that is my nightmare of just screwing up so bad that someone is now in danger. And I was just like, oh, poor Holland. Like, even the speech where Jack's almost repelled by him, but trying to give him advice and... It's like a midshipman at 30. It's like you're, it's like 12 year olds are 30, a, a midshipman. You should be a captain by now and you're not. And it's, it's, um, yeah, it's hard, but it fits into the ecology of the environment of the ship. So it's kind of as, as much as the moment is sad. I mean, I just love how the slow motion goes and oh. the water just sprays up. Like it. That's what I said. The, the shot of the water spraying is oh. like just incredible. It's and incredible. then when he's, staring back up at um our young shipman yeah like and it's just his kind of like ghostly pallid expression um it's devastating is, yeah. yeah i mean it doesn't take away the devastating moment and the sadness of that character and the sadness and guilt that the rest of the crew feels but at the same time it feels of the natural order which i think is a really really um difficult tightrope to walk and he manages to do it like it's you get both sides of the situation and you're still able to have compassion for this poor man while going okay now the boat can actually function now like it's a weird thing like that only can happen in a war movie if that makes sense yeah totally and especially one that is about the kind of like napoleonic era and like the traditions of like old school soldiering and and semening if that's even a word Um, oh he does say it once they will semen and i giggled um yeah yeah. (laughs) it's kind of it it goes into that that whole dynamic and i think yeah like it, it it makes the the presence of the galapagos more reflective of kind of like where the ship is and the idea of evolving as well yes and adapting um which obviously pays off so brilliantly in the end and one thing i also have to say is that what i love so much about this movie and again kind of about like you know naval movies a lot of naval movies anyway not a lot of them do this well quite a few do but some don't is the fact that we never spend close time with the french opponents um not because i hate the french i don't um but kind of like the idea (laughs) of like And like yeah yeah, but I'm I'm, I'm half Scottish. So there's the old alliance oh, thing going on yes, there as well. Yes, so that, yes. yeah, so there's kind of that thing going on. See, but what I also like about it is you don't spend any time. All you do is see them through the periscope. And I love how there's that great shot at the very. I think it's the first confrontation they have where Aubrey gets the magnifying glass out and he's looking across and he sees the Acheron's uh, captain looking back at him. And you have that great kind of mirror image. It's like he's staring into a mirror and yeah. seeing himself. Yeah, he's like, okay, I'm I'm trying to outfox this man. This man is my equal. And then you have the amazing boarding sequence, which we'll have to like go into the specifics of because that's one of the most amazing like finales to a war movie ever. Yeah. Um, but the bit where he goes into the Captain uh, De Vignier, I think it's I think his name is called. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, they go into Le Vignier. Mm. Uh, they go into his quarters. Um, and it's the exact same 
ecology, to use your word, the ecosystem that is on the surprise, the exact same thing is there. He does battle with his equivalent of um, his chef, you know, yes. he gets stabbed in kind of like the gut area. Um, and then you go through and he's kind of got his sheet music that he's been playing. So he kind of comes from a similar kind of like class background. He's got those same interests. In the, the, the arrangement of everything is very similar. And then you go down to the, the medic's quarters, the surgeon's hall, and it's blood and guts and everything. And at the end of it all, who you think, who you think is, is, is the, the doctor and the, yeah. the, the captain is, is lying dead on the, on the table, ostensibly, mm. um, presents, gives him the honour of having his sword. And because you think, okay, those, yes. Even the captain Cap- of that other boat knew that they are equals and if whoever bests gets the sword. It's, um, no, I mean, that final battle is amazing. And we mentioned it before, Alan's death is so goddamn incredible. I mean, the poor man. It is, because he's always been arrogant. He always thinks he knows best. And so, and the friendship is also using deception. They're all pretending to be dead. That's, or most of them are, like, they're hiding and everyone, oh, oh, I think we've done our job. And then they all get up and bullet to the head down. And it's like, holy shit. Like, it still gets me every single time that shot of how quick it is and then it just goes smoke and screaming and it, the the swords clanking and the the guns i mean this movie did win an academy award for sound design which is very well deserved it is um it's so chaotic that you can't always see what's happening but you know what's happening which is again a very hard thing to do like you're watching a lot of action movies and you're like oh they're not shooting it right i can't see the action but this one it's okay because it's happening so quick that you can't always process what's happening in front of your face, but again, that is more of a real realistic thing of what's probably happening in in battle. Yeah, I mean, totally, I totally agree. Like, I think, yeah, you could make the argument that the fast cutting is there to mask any kind of, like, potential foibles there are with the yes. choreography, but I think the whole thing here is that it's not choreographed. I mean, there is obviously, like, duels and stuff, but, you know, <laughs> boarding warfare back in the day, you know, people would have their boarding axes, their muskets, you know, they have their pikes here or whatever. And again, just to quick diversion the bit where they reveal themselves to be the surprise mm. and like like let fly raise up the colors and stuff mm. like that's great um but like that whole kind of like clattering of swords there's a bit where one of the guys is using like because you would just use anything you had on hand that he's using the kind of like a ship mallet that he'd be using to hammer in pieces of wood to heal breaches in the hole he's bonking a frenchman on the head with that thing and jesus christ that yes. must really hurt um i'd be seeing looney tune stars above and exactly. birds above my head if yeah. i got hit with one of those things but it's it's so well done because like the actual naval sequences where you can feel the rigorousness of the attention to detail and like the 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 actual historical implementation of everything you get that with these sequences too um like the whole um the the, the marines being stationed on the deck and, and sharpshooting to try and get their marksmen um the stuff where they're trying to quickly raise the cannon down to get their cannon from from intercepting them all which is just so brilliantly done and like the hanging out of like all the different um like the the, the flint top pistols and, and and the swords or whatever um right on down to like them going down into the decks and i just i love i love the the duels that they have here and there's that brief bit where matron is like getting to show off his fencing spy skills yes. which is just really cool let him cook it feels, let him cook yeah, it feels like it's um coming out of nowhere you're like whoa but it's yeah <laughs> but actually he's he knows how to fight he knows how to defend himself at his um yeah i mean that final battle is so good and 
Yeah, I love the bit where the chef almost tries to stab him and Jack's like, nope, nope. <laughs> Get back. Russell Crowe's just there like, let me show you my passions. Yes. <laughs> the guy just slinks back under the table going, ooh, sorry. Um, it's, I don't know, this movie can be funny and brutal and sad all within the same moment and I love it about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bit where he's getting overpowered by all of them and you kind of, in a brief moment, you're like, no! And then Aubrey comes rushing over and is there like, get away from my boyfriend! Yes! <laughs> yes! I'll kill you all! <laughs> Which is just brilliant. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, and then, like, it, like, it's... What I also like about that scene is that it feels like there's no natural ingress. There's no kind of predictability to the flow of combat. It just stops. Yeah. You know, at one point in time, the, the, just at one point in the film... The clanking, the clashing of metal, the scraping of swords, gunfire, muskets, whatever, grenades going off, it just stops. Yeah. Um, and I think that is like one, probably one of the most authentically depicted moments of combat like I've seen in a film where it feels like, okay, yeah, there isn't, like, I couldn't predict the rhythm of combat here. It was very much a case of like, oh, it's just gone. Like, it's, like there's been so much bloodshed or whatever, and there's people surrendering. They've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> that it just kind of comes to an end. Yeah, there's there's no there's no more. There's no kind of peter out. There's just kind of and we're done. Like there's yeah. no one else to kill or there's no one else. Yeah, they either surrendered or they're dead. So it's it's it kind of it's, it's a bit of a sudden job but it was like okay, and there's nothing and then the smoke starts to clear and then you've got Aubrey kind of looking around the boat, but that's kind of probably how it would go. Like it's yeah, I mean, these um naval vessels battles were just very fast very dirty very brutal and then it would just end and then you'd go back to repairing your boats that was i can't imagine doing all those repairs on sea though that would that kept blowing my mind i'm like we should go get a new mast no that will do we're not scratching around brazil for you know six (laughs) six weeks to find a new mast and i'm just like dude go to land <laughs> but then you had to repair on sea that that was just kind of a function you had to do and it's it's the idea of like a boat that i'm on taking on water and it's okay like yeah. that will never be weird to me i'm like the, the water should be outside <laughs> please keep the water outside um but they obviously oh had a limit God. of like okay it's holding steady that we can deal with this water i'm like no <laughs> it shouldn't be yeah as you yeah. said these are coffins like um, you're sleeping in a hammock, which is like a coffin. This ship is a coffin, and the bowels of the ship kind of reflect that perfectly. There is no air. There is no light. There is... Everyone's ducking down. It's... Uh, it, oh, my God. It would... Such an awful life, but... Yeah. Even yeah, for the, totally even is. for those in the up, who were in the uniforms who were, like, the upper class, it would not have been... It's not a nice life. It, it's... It's... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do, in in the book, does like when they take on the Acheron, is it a similar moment of deception, or is it like kind of? Just, yeah, I think it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. which because the That's... British have traditionally hated spy work, they called it undignified or something like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they never. Doesn't surprise me. We're very boring. Yeah, they they didn't like it because it wasn't noble. You're meant to like go out with your colours and the enemy to show who you are, and then. <laughs> In the 20th century, when you needed spies, they were just like, well, that's a bit undignified. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting as well that this was, like, they did make it French, because I would be curious to see how the movie would have been received if it was, like, a War of 1812 thing. And it if it would was, have like... been fascinating, and at the time, because it was 2003, and criticising America at that time was... And it was and... fun to criticise France at the time as exactly. well. Exactly! So, yeah. could... It was fun to criticise France at the time it was very controversial to criticize anything american at that at that stage um 
So it would have been interesting to see. Yeah, I, I, I would have loved to have seen it. I just don't think they would have ever pulled it off, especially considering this was mostly American funded. Um, they're like, yeah, no, we're not the bad guys. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the interesting thing because I think obviously on the on the paper, the producers, the people with the money would have looked at that and gone, "We're not making the Americans the bad guys." What do you mean? But in reality, you know, the movie doesn't present a single antagonistic force or protagonistic force. That's all just people like components like you say in the ecology of warfare you know the base like a mirror image of each other constantly trying to outwit each other which you get that great bit at the end where they had that moment i love i love that ending so much because it's literally a case of like oh we're finally gonna get to go on a date to the galapagos yes. isn't that gonna be great like Stephen nigger you've always been told oh you want to go to the galapagos and now you actually get to stay there and capture all those lizards and birds you love and that, it's like oh, that bird jam. specifically that's the thing he really wants is the bird mm-hmm. and because um i love the shot when he's got all the cages and i think his his man and i think killick and the the boy they're all carrying these cages and they just had to let they're like ah gotta go ah crap gotta let them go but he gets a few things and the line of you say the bird's flightless it's not going anywhere like it's such <laughs> a um like yeah we'll come back um, it's a very old married couple yeah. kind of and they back are an, and forth. And they are an old married couple. I mean, <laughs> that's who they are. They kind of, they spend every single day together. They spend their lives together more than they do their wives and their children. They are a unit. Um, it's, Stephen is the most important thing in Jack's life. And I love the fact that the movie does acknowledge that. Like, oh no, my friend's dying. Okay, we need to go to, fine. I'll take him to the Galapagos Island so he can do surgery on himself like that is <laughs> which is one of the most metal things i've ever seen that's up there with a the bit in ronin where robert de niro does yes. surgery on himself uh, that is like yeah oh i can read a book i'll just get my bearings and then stephen wick is there like no 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 you're not i'm doing this myself <laughs> i like, love <laughs> love love that scene because i love how he basically has like the 19th century equivalent of dr nick working on his like naval vessel <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> the neck bones connected to the oh god what's that I, yeah. like, when he looks he opens up the book and he sees the picture of the internal organs he's like, <laughs> god, like god. just there take, taking us awake oh and the fact that it's done it's an accident it's because the is it because the dumb guy's trying to shoot that poor albatross and he, then he shoots yeah. steve i'm like oh my god idiot it's terrible not shot e- man how did he get on how did he get in the, the he might be a marksman oh my, a okay being an army guy on a boat must suck more than anything else because one you don't have a job you're just sitting there waiting around until you you are required i mean everyone's got a job on the boat then they have their job in war the army guys are just like like they're just there it's uh, can't wait yeah. to do some boarding and yeah. die horribly yes. <laughs> pretty much because you forget that they did have armies on the ships and you're just like so you just kind of just hung around got drunk and then oh shit i just need to probably go in yeah. um it's like here's my weapon it's called a boarding axe i use it when i board things <laughs> yes. i've not boarded a vessel in five years please someone give me something to board i'm losing my mind because <laughs> these, these missions would last for years these guys will be out to sea for freaking years and you're on this boat and you're literally just like twiddling your thumbs and talking about your <laughs> battle axes oh my god just some poor guy from boston who was just there like i was out there hunting a whale and the british navy came along and pressed me into service and now i've got this stupid stupid axe to chop things with i don't know when i'm getting back home they're giving me a lime to suck on because apparently we all have scurvy (laughs) i mean 
Yeah, the, the movie doesn't go into that, but the amount of boredom that you would have on one of these boats is insane. And if your captain's crazy and won't... Because I love the fact that you see people fishing. You see people collecting water when it rains. Like, you're seeing kind of how the ecosystem works in terms of how they get a lot of their food. And the fact there's animals on board and everything like that. Um, but yeah, just being a soldier and the fact that you often were pressed into service, they just looked at you and just went, you're on a boat. And you're like, what? <laughs> What's going Honestly, on? Honestly, either, right. The other thing as well is that the reason why I think we should all be allowed a little bit of, of, uh, like semening as a, as a tree is the fact that all these guys have great voices. Yes. Um, so either they held auditions or just everyone just worked on that talent because they had nothing else to do until they were hitting those harmonies yeah. the entire time. Yeah. So I don't know if you played Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag, one of the best things about that game is collecting the sea shanties that you can give to your crew. I, I need a whole rendition of the Master and Commander cast choir to like run me through down like the whole gamut of, of songs. <laughs> oh my god, it's it's amazing. Like I think that's what they yeah, I think the sea shanties are amazing, the voices are great, they're harmonizing. I guess if you're on a boat that long you you learn how to do it, but oh boy, it's yeah, it's just those little details that you're just like, Oh yeah, they would probably just sing because there's nothing else to do except for like just imagining scrubbing the floor. Yeah, being on a boat in the 19th century and like hitting a harmony with my best bud and going, sick harmony, dude. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I have no teeth. <laughs> Are we going to get a whiskey allowance this week? Like, it's like, yeah, yeah it's... Someone get... stole the grog again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, man, no, the real, for real, it would suck. It would, it would suck. absolutely suck. Because the, the boat that does go into it that Jack is in charge and he will whip you and it's like, he's he's a tyrant in, in some respects. He's a gentle tyrant, like he's a compassionate, but it's his word. And yeah, being on a ship under, oh no, I, no, absolutely not. It's just like the most horrific thing humans have gotten other humans to do. Um, a literal new depth of, well, this is already crappy enough on land. How about we stick them underneath the water? Oh. <laughs> like, but there's no way it'll be even stinkier down there honestly sickos man oh you can smell there are times you can smell this movie and it is not pleasant like you're just like (laughs) exactly um yeah like the ending the whole thing where i love the the resolution that we get with all the different characters here like you know they do have to go and pursue the aqua again because captain jack has been deceived it kind of goes in that whole you know you know i'm so glad that you brought that ecological point because i would have never have dawned on me for a second that it's so visually apparent too um but that whole kind of like cyclical nature of like nature like you know they, they basically you know the, the the thing never ends you know one thing's resolved and it's actually he's been deceived so he now needs to go back and rescue his mate from potentially being cooed by the french prisoners yes. on board the vessel and stuff and yeah no i mean that's is that was that is that twist ending in in the book too or is that like a special edition I can't, for the film actually i cannot remember because i don't yeah know exactly if Pullings was even in that book. Ah, fair. I know um, it's really annoying yeah. to, like, interrogate, like, people no, who have it's... read book adaptations, because I'm just, I'm fascinated, because I, I literally have no idea No, because it's, it's amazing, because the characters kind of flow in and out of books, and all the books kind of run together, so, but it's kind of this amazing, wait, was Pullings on his own boat, or was he doing this? Where, what, I don't know where he was, like, he's... Character, yeah, one character. I mean, one book he doesn't have the surprise. The next book, oh, he's got the surprise back. Like it just kind of weaves in and out of just different circumstances and different adventures. Like um, an adventure will finish in another book, and then halfway through you'll pick up and go. Like it's very, 
it's kind of the nature of the book so I can't remember and it could be referencing another completely different um book in that one because there is a few different books because I can't even remember if Holmes in a uh, far side of the world or if that's mm. something else like um they really took the best bits from every single book and put it into one movie but um no I think it really illustrates how this one ship is its own environment and how yeah certain things can kind of change and it does kind of set up for a sequel that we never got which I'm gutted because I liked James Dar- Darcy, I think that's how you pronounce his name, as Yes, as he's fantastic. Yeah. He's great. He's got a whole, again, like, more of a perfect example of a guy who isn't given an amazing amount of stuff to do in the movie, but whenever he's on screen, it's like, no, I totally buy you in that yeah. role. Um, and yeah, I know it, it, it totally sucks that we're not getting another one. I mean, I know they've announced the prequel um, the other year with Chris Hemsworth in the Aubrey role. Um, mm. So I'm curious to see how that goes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it would probably definitely be the meeting. I think they're going back and trying to do like a like the origin story of those two meeting. Um, mm. Kind of like the I don't like you, I don't like you either, but we're stuck in a boat. Oh wait, <laughs> we're married now. Excellent, kind of rom com kind of thing. <laughs> we're um, like this every time. <laughs> yes, because it's literally just. Um, them just sh- giving each other shit, which is my favorite elements of the book. And you do see this in the, like, you know, I'm going to name you after a tortoise. Um, why? Cause you're fat. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of, um, amazing. And I love the fact that it shows that. Yeah. I mean, just the, the fact that, um, Matra's constantly used no gloves and no washing of hands. It's just blood everywhere. Cause they didn't realize about hygiene. Like they were just, you just dig your fingers in, in a wound and that's it, fine. And, and I'm like, can at least someone boil some water? Like, <laughs> but I suppose you can't have fire on a boat because that would just be disastrous. Okay, I, yeah. You do what you got to do. But um, no, I'm, I'm interested in a prequel because I get more Master and Commander. Um, and when you said Chris Hemsworth, it was the exact same reaction when I found out Russell Crowe was playing Audrey. I was like, is that going to work? Um, yeah, we're perfectly, is, so, is he, yeah. Is, he, is he too chiseled to it? Because I know, like, I look at Russell Crowe and I'm like, he's got such a, like, I feel like he's one of those faces where it's quite versatile. We've seen him when he's been super lean. We've seen him when he's kind of, like, not been that lean person. I think he just, he, he is such a great visual representation of, like, that kind of officer, I feel. Yeah, I look a... at Chris Hemsworth and I hope that he's brave enough to go beyond that varnished image. Because I feel like in every Hemsworth movie I've seen, he's been beautiful. And he yeah. needs to be, like, he can still be beautiful. There are a lot of beautiful men in Master and Commander. There's also a lot of, like, really smelly men. Yes. But I need him to, to there's this fine line between, there's just getting that beautiful, there's a Venn diagram, there's, like, smelly on one side and beautiful on the other, yeah. and Master he, and Commander's right in the middle. He needs to get in there. He needs <laughs> to stop going to the gym for a couple of weeks, let yes. kind of everything kind of just fall, yeah. let gravity like, do its job, and... Yeah. Because there's a girth to Russell Crowe in, um... <laughs> no, and I'm not saying that quote. No, that quote came from Scorsese the other week as well. As he, he's got that girth. <laughs> he's got that girth. <laughs> he does, even when when he's fit gladiator style, he's still got this kind of girth to him, and that's what Aubrey needs. He needs to be. Oh. Belly first, almost. Even though this is not Jack, he's still kind of fit in this movie. But you can tell he's kind of imposing. And Chris Hemsworth just needs to not lift so many weights, just for a couple, just for a year. Let him kind of just kind of go, but still have that 
imposing kind of get some yeah. girth on them that's all i'm saying I we mean... need um we've, we've come up with the new subtitle for the movie master and commander colon he's got he had that girth to him or something i don't know <laughs> you find the girth thought. on the other side of the world or something <laughs> <laughs> you've been given your new command aubrey the hms girth girth <laughs> um yeah so i'm i'm curious but i just I just don't want that sheen, that new, that mm-hmm. modern movie sheen to it. I think you need to get down and dirty. This this has to be a smelly movie. I mean, then what's the point? What are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so much of this is down to weir as well. Like exactly. I would, um, you know, it's seventy nine now. Crikey! I oh mean, my god! I don't, I don't know what recently he's the last movie he did was in twenty ten. So I doubt that he is going to be wanting to come back and do an hmm. arduous like shoot like a new master and commander movie. Yeah. Um but I would hope that any production would, you know, look towards him and be like, hey, you got any good suggestions? People who you think could marshal a production like this? Because off the top of my head, um I'm struggling to think of people who would And again, like it all comes down to the fact that like this was made at a point in time where Hollywood was keen to throw money at epics and like historical authenticity was like a big thing um and you would hope that maybe for a new master and commander movie that there would be someone insane enough in hollywood to look at that and go well you know it didn't make that much money but let's just spend like a couple of hundred million on just making an actual ship again and we'll just throw a bunch of actors into the ocean and just have a laugh yeah um and and not you know cgi it to high heaven because then it won't be is good i mean again i'm like you i just want more i want more of this um which would be good and if i can't get more of this then maybe we'll settle for old man sharp at some point i don't know i oh yeah they know they did do sean bean was like they did the whole was that the bbc that did the whole yeah yeah, yeah sharp yeah i remember watching that as a kid i haven't seen them forever but yeah i guess <laughs> yeah no old man sharp is is need for a, for a revival i mean we've got well Here's the thing, Ridley Scott can make a $100 million movie and it not make money, and everyone's like, yeah, it's fine, it's Ridley, because he's like 85 now and still making movies, which is insane. But it'll be interesting to see how Napoleon does, so, um, and if that does kind of well, then maybe we will get more of this, but um, it'll be it, it'll be interesting. I'm curious about Napoleon. I feel like that thing's either going to be great or very bad and i feel like h trail the first trailer i saw i was like "Ooh, this looks like it's gonna be going for mtv vibes yeah. and then more recently i've seen a little bit more of it and i'm like i just they're trying to they're trying to it's such a weird phrase to say they're trying to girl boss napoleon in a way at times um but i'm looking forward to seeing what like joaquin phoenix does in the role and yeah and how making that comes a, from it joaquin phoenix is doing this awkward thing which i like and then you yeah. have what's her name kirby there and i'm like oh no this mm-hmm. could be interesting um, but yeah, I was watching that first trailer and went, ooh, this, is this going to be, um, cause I want the last duel. I don't want House of Gucci, though I kind of <laughs> love House of Gucci. Um, not for the same reasons why I like the last duel. <clears throat> so I'm yeah. kind of hoping we get the more of the last duel Napoleon and not House of Gucci. Um, but it's going to be interesting to sort of see because I know Hollywood has been trying to get another Napoleon thing off the ground since think the 1919 whatever that the silent movie which it was oh god yeah i mean we had a really good waterloo movie in oh yes 70 yes i haven't seen yeah like the the soviet co-production which is one of the most epic things you can watch i think all of it's on youtube for free as well so um 
But yeah, no, I'm interested to see how it works. And again, it was very nice that you came up with Master and Commander for this because it kind of fits quite nicely. This will probably go out when Napoleon is out. So oh, yes. If, It'd be perfect. Yeah. yeah. That'll, be, that'll be really good. But yeah, I mean, closing thoughts on the, on the film. Lindsay, do you, like, how, how is this, how was your, how did your rewatch kind of leave you feeling? Well, I pointed at the screen a few times, uh, so I feel like <laughs> I did the dad thing. Um, no, I think this movie is kind of perfect for what it's doing and what it's attempting. Um, and I kind of think it feels like one of those movies they don't make anymore, but they don't think they even made them in 2003. Like, this is kind of this classical kind of thing that we didn't know how good we had it at the time, which kind of sucks, but we still have this movie. Um, it, so yeah, no, I, I I love it. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's a, it's a beautiful time. Lots of happy memories for me, which is which is always a nice bonus when I get to revisit one of these films. Um, and it gets better with with every watch. And yeah, I mean Peter Weir, man, just great filmmaker, like oh. absolute one of the coolest dudes ever. Um, but yeah, I think I think that just about wraps up everything. Lindsay, do you want to like tell the folks where everyone can find you and Schlock and Awe? Uh, Schlock and Awe is on the, all the pods. Pretty sure it is now. Now, um, But yes, you can find me there. You can also find me on all the socials under even yeah, I should use Twitter as much as I do. Um, Schlock and Awe 1. Um, or you can also find me on Reading Geek and that is, yeah, uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, uh, Instagram, those kind of things. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Cool. I mean, thank you so much for joining me. Like, it's been an absolute pleasure oh, thank to you. like talk thank you for having to me you on. <laughs> about this film. I mean, no, it's great anytime. Honestly, um, I've had a, had a lovely time going over this movie, and it's like it's like it's nine p.m. on a Sunday, and the energy levels are peak high right now. <laughs> which usually tells down. me that we've that we've had a very very good discussion. Yeah. But yeah. Um, this has been the Wheel of Dime Movies podcast. Thank you all for listening. Um, before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to our patrons. Thank you to Christopher Darby, George Jackson, Thomas Mulgrew, Shaka, and Josh Brown. Remember, if you want to go and support the podcast, you can do so. We are over there at Wheel of Dime Movies. You can find me hanging around onto the decaying corpse of Twitter at Ewan Ruins Things. I'm also around on Letterboxd at Ewan Patterson. Uh, and if you want to find my further adventures on YouTube, I'm usually popping up on What Culture every now and then. I've got an I've got a video essay on Christine coming out on What Culture Horror soon. Ooh. It might even be out by the time this goes out. Um, and also, I'm writing something on Last Action Hero, which is pretty fun. Um, but yeah, this has been the Little W's podcast, and uh, I don't know what's going to be the next episode after this. We're probably going to be in the Christmas season by the time that this comes out. So. Maybe a jingle all the way. Or a Christmas vacation. Those are the two I'm aiming for. But yeah, I'll stop blathering on now. (laughs) Goodbye all.